Welcome back to Toil and Trouble, a podcast of the macabre. I, as always, am your host, Tori, joined by our special guest host, Ashley. Hey, everybody. And we have Ashley's best friend in the world and co-host of Coffee Laters Die First, Nick. Hi. Hi, darling. How are you? Hi. I'm good. I'm not going to lie. I'm super excited to be here and to discuss the things. Um, I have a lot of yes. thoughts and feelings. Yay, I'm so excited. Nick, why don't you give our audience just a little introduction to who you are to do, kind of like a little Nick 101. Sure. Um, so my name is Nick Charles. Um, Ashley and I are the co-hosts of Copulators Die First, a gay horror comedy podcast. And um, we have been friends since forever. And we're just both queer and in love with movie making and specifically the horror genre and how it's specifically um, a place that shines light on difficult topics without it being weird or um, ultimately uh, scandalous in a lot of senses. Um, And we just really enjoy exploring horror movies from our homosexual perspectives. Um, By day, I am a reproductive genetic counselor, and by night, I'm a spooky bitch. Um, (laughs) Um, That sounded like if you were to be on next. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That show. How was that ever a show? Have you watched it as an adult? Yes, actually. I only saw like a Facebook compilation of like next intros I haven't watched it as an adult adult oh my god Tori that is instead of your um TikTok fine compilations tonight that is your mission (laughs) to go on YouTube and watch old reruns of next because then you'll be like oh my god why are these gays dressing in um you know Abercrombie jeans and flip-flops oh my god that's literally exactly what I was thinking in my head yeah, that is that seemed to be like the undercover gay uniform, though. Um, it wasn't like, yeah. very undercover sweaty at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it I was like the jeans, the flip flops, three different polos, all of Ooh, the colors yep. popped. Yeah. Collar yeah. pop. Because, especially um, because all three of us were in high school at the same time. So, yeah. yes. Also, like spiky spiked hair and frosted the, tips. It's a frosted, frosted tips were tips. optional. They were they were kind of <laughs> optional, but I will. I will admit that I did have them in middle school. Um, I wore a lot of oversized T-shirts with dragons on them. Um, yeah, you did. I was I was that kid, so I thought I was fooling everyone and their mom. And spoiler alert, I was not. Um, <laughs> not even your own mom. Not even my own mom. But um, I actually think if you were to search for... MTV Next cringe compilation on YouTube, you would probably find some. Oh, I freaking bet. There's one that I saw on Facebook, and it was just like all of their intros. I'm just like, oh, this show is so problematic. Yeah. How did this be okay? Oh, no. so bad. So no, there bad. Was, uh, the last time I watched it, it was this episode where the the the, the suitor was taking the first guy on a date in a park somewhere in like probably like Los Angeles or something. And they were going to be doing a stage combat training class. 
they were like getting suited up in their uh, pads and stuff. And the suitor turns to the guy and says, so how do you feel about pharmaceutical animal testing? And then the other guy taken off guard didn't say anything for like five seconds because he's like, the hell is going on here. And then the guy, the guy went, you know what? Next, you didn't have an answer. And that's an important (laughs) topic to me. And I was like, you need to die, sir, because you need to relax. (laughs) This is why you like he gave homosexuals a bad name that that's that's how it happened. It was him. Ooh, that that's how. Okay, it's not just years of people being bigots. It's that one guy. I mean, in my humble opinion, perhaps, <laughs> but um, you're probably more right. To be honest with you, TBH. Yeah. Anyways, so we aren't here to talk about old early two thousands MTV trash, which is also hashtag amazing. We are going to talk about two stories from where you two grew up. Yeah. Yes. Um, and the funny thing about this is that my favorite murder actually covered this. Yes. And Nick did not know anything about it until he heard about it on My Favorite Murder. And he was like, oh, my God, how did I not know? And I was like, I don't know. You just didn't ask me about it. <laughs> because mm-hmm. graduating where we grew up, you had to do like a senior dissertation Mm-hmm. And this is what I did mine on. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to know so, what I did mine on? What yes. did you do yours on? The politics of Wicked. Oh. I mean, yeah, that's a thing. Um. So Todrick, yeah. That's... Todrick Hall made a whole album about it. That's true. So. That's true. And again, you were not fooling anybody in that closet. No. At all. No, because <laughs> I, I also like, like I made a poster board where I cut out the silhouettes of Alphaba and Glenda and painted half of it pink and half of it green. Like, in my head, I was just an artsy fartsy kid. No, I was full blown homosexual already. Oh my goodness. Um, but uh, en- en- <laughs> enough about my story. All right, so Ashley, why don't you kick this off? So, Tori, have you ever wanted to learn about witchcraft, but you just weren't sure how to begin? Yeah. Yeah, same. Author Brie Nagarin, her breakout hit, Grove Daughter Witchery, A-plus name, by the way, introduces readers to a world of magic where spellcraft is separate from spirituality, where practicality, self-reliance, and common sense are key, and where you don't need to visit a high-end occult shop or join a coven to find what you need. Though, it's not like I don't recommend that. Always a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) So in this book, you're going to discover all sorts of things, like how to write your own spells, tips for creating various charms and potions, and all the advice that Brie wishes somebody had given her when she was first starting out. Readers have rightfully hailed Grove Daughter Witchery as the book that every witch should have in their library, so go and pick up your copy on Amazon today. If you're interested in exploring further, Brie also has two additional books available. The Sisters Grimoire, and that is a volume of original spells inspired by Grimm's fairy tales. How cool is that? And another really solid title. With worksheets and correspondences for creating your very own workings from your favorite stories. Whether you need health, wealth, or happiness, the Sisters Grimoire is sure to help you find your happily ever after. If you're looking to stock your potion kit, Bree's latest book, Pestle Work, got just nailing it with these titles. I love it. Home run. Home I know. run. 
And that's not just because this is sponsored. <laughs> or because she's like a good human. Like, I know. One of our biggest supporters on Twitter. Love it. Good human well, material. But not exactly. like but not like human material. Like not don't like Brie. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, no. If it's cheese, you can ah whatever. Go ahead. Oh, Sorry, Brie. <laughs> was that an accidental pun? It was. Ugh. Boo. Boo. Anyway, uh, her latest book, Pestlework, contains over 100 recipes for magical powders and oils from the author's own personal files. And it also has instructions for how to make them and special notations for any possible hazards so you can always practice your craft safely. So it's basically like the Half-Blood Prince where you get that cool textbook with all the spells, but then you've also got all the inside info. But always use it for good. She is ticking all my boxes. (laughs) Brie Nagarin is a non-Wiccan witch with over a decade of experience working with practical magics and teaching others tricks and tips she's learned along the way. You can find her on Twitter, Instagram, Amazon, WordPress, and YouTube by searching Brie Nagarin, B-R-E-E-N-I-C-G-A-R-R-A-N. Or become a sponsor for as little as a dollar a month by visiting her Patreon at patreon.com slash and get sneak previews for her latest projects. Also, if you guys are in the Richmond, Virginia area, you guys can actually meet her in person at the Witches Market at the Fallout RVA on Saturday, October 19th. Check out Fallout RVA's Facebook page for more information. Bree says happy crafting and wants to remind you guys, always practice safe hex. Love it. You love a good pun, especially if it's witchy. We do have to say this was a sponsored ad provided by the author. However, I can still say from the bottom of my little girl heart, this is very hashtag spooky girl approved. This is kind of super important for very many reasons but primarily tomorrow is actually the anniversary of the day that they found her body september what's tomorrow 19th 19th 1972 where we grew up super small town sure the same as for you tori but mm-hmm. imagine being a police officer in a small east coast town right not a whole lot going on so one hot day in the middle of september you get a 911 call, and it's this lady, and she's hysterical on the phone because her dog brought in a human severed arm. Nope. Fuck that. Springfield, New Jersey, super small. According to the 1970 census, there was 15,740 people. The only reason this place is actually on the map now is because there is a place called Baltstraw Golf Course. And it's like, hoity-toity, rich elite go there to golf. But starting in 2016, that's when they held the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship. Basically, nothing happened in Springfield until 2016. You're from Springfield, and I'm from Springfield, and apparently a ton of weird shit happens in Springfield. I know. That's why I told you. I was like, we need to do this because it's like a tale of two weird Springfields. So my cousins are actually from Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, Do they have weird stuff there, too? 
I mean, I don't know a lot about Springfield, Massachusetts, but I do know that Springfield, Massachusetts is a larger Springfield. And there is a high rate of like um, minority crime, like minority on minority and minority on police, etc. Because it's a, it's, it's a very um, stratified town, if you will, by right. come level. Um, Much like our Springfield. This all started on August 7th, 1972, which was four days after Jeanette De Palma's 16th birthday. So she left her home at Fort Clearview Road and planned on hitchhiking to her friend Gail Donahue's house in Mountainside, New Jersey. I mean, like, the average person isn't going to know the geography of Springfield, New Jersey whatsoever. But for that to occur, she would have to walk at least five miles. So that afternoon, her mom offered to drop her off at the Summit train station, which was three miles away on her way to work. And she's like, no, like, I'm 16 now. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm a big girl and I can do what I want. She proceeds to start hitchhiking in that direction. And that's kind of the last time anybody ever saw her alive. I would not allow my 16-year-old to hitchhike five miles. Like, I get, like, it's the 70s and, like, it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. But still, I'd be like, well, you can get your ass in the car and I can drive you or you're not going. Right. But, again, it was 1972 and she was kind of, like, pitching a fit and having a hissy about it because... To put it into perspective, she was already apprehensive about going to Gail's house because she was going there to meet up with Gail and two boys. So she was kind of like on the fence and she kind of tried to backpedal on Gail and bail and be like, mm, I kind of like literally her excuse was I have to scrub the toilets. Mm. So she's like, you know, not really. And Gail's like, no, you can't bail on me. We already made these plans. You have to stick to it. I'm not going enter- to like entertain these two dudes on my own. After she didn't make it to Gail's house that evening, her mom actually called the Springfield Police Department, which is literally the Pandora box of worms in this whole situation. Six weeks later, September 19th, her remains were actually found atop a cliff inside Springfield's Hudai Quarry which is, like, adjacent to a really, really, really affluent part of Springfield, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It literally separates all the middle class and lower class people fall below this hilltop. I only went up there once my entire life. And I got to tell you, it was a very scary drive. Because if you were not watching where you were going, your car was going over the edge of that hill cliff. Also... In, in conjunction with that, it is 2019 and leading up that hilltop that it's like a very winding, steep climb. There is not a single streetlight. No, it's fucking dark as shit. And like, especially on the way down, there is no mm. guardrail. There's no, no. guardrail on the There's one no side. There's no guardrail. Um, so but, that, that road will take you to like where all the rich people live? Yes. So if okay. you go up okay. it. Yeah, if you go up it, there's mansions. If you go down it, it's like the rest of the town. Literally. Like, McMansions, people we knew in high school that were driving BMWs and Mercedes, and Nick and I were walking to school. To put, yeah. it, nice. put it into perspective. Nice, so they can just, like, spit down from their high high podiums onto the poor, poor people. Literally. Literally. Just, ugh, gross. So her body was actually found 
due to a Dalmatian bringing that severed arm down to the lawn of a woman in Baltimore Apartments, which is located at 541 Morris Ave. So if anybody wants to look it up, that's where you can find it. Nick, I don't know if you knew anybody that lived there, but I definitely did. Um, I actually almost moved there once I had my own job, but then I did. Right, right. It's a cluster of apartments, and it, like, dead ends into a series of cul-de-sacs. So it's very secluded from, like, your average apartment situation. Yeah, everything around it, anything else in our part of New Jersey is just, like, you go from pavement or concrete to woods immediately. that's basically Springfield. This lady actually called, she still remains anonymous and she doesn't want to be known because it's very controversial and we'll get to that. This lady actually called Springfield PD because she was like, hey, there was an arm on my front lawn. And one of the first responders, his name was Ed Kish, he's actually a retired police officer now, responded and initially thought that it was like an arm of a mannequin because neighborhood kids would constantly like prank this lady. And then he got there and he saw the dog and he was like, there's no way this dog brought this up here because it was like a teeny tiny little puppy. And then he found out it was the neighbor's Dalmatian that brought it up. So, like, why wouldn't you think it was a mannequin too? Like, right. why why would you ever think human arm, you know? Especially because the body of this girl, she hasn't been seen in six weeks. Nobody's going to think about it. Nobody's going to even put two and two together. They just thought she was a runaway. Because, hi, it's the 70s. Everybody's getting loaded on whatever weird drugs are going around and they're just chasing the american dream and moving west after they find the severed arm they start combing what is now route 78 and it's the main highway in the state that goes from the delaware water gap in pennsylvania all the way to new york right nick yes Mm -hmm. that's actually how i get to and from work in new jersey because i live in staten island yeah so this was before Route 78 was even built. So they were basically combing the dirt road while they were still paving it. And then in the, it was like the dirt bed of the highway, they found one of her shoes. And then they climbed up the hill and that's where we come to this rock formation that was dubbed by local teens in the 70s and prior called the Devil's Teeth. The Devil's Teeth is actually a rock formation that, like, if you were to take a skull and turn it upside down, if that looks makes like sense. like the devil. Yeah. The teeth of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it looks like, so the way her body was found, her skeletal remains were actually surrounded by a series of strange and possibly occult objects. Of course they were. At of the course. Devil's Teeth. Of and course. Like, correct. And also, none of this phases me being a citizen of this town for the majority of my life none of this phases me at all no um so the descriptions of how her body was found kind of varies as far as positioning of her body most commonly agreed upon that the remains were found inside of a coffin-shaped perimeter of fallen branches and logs inside the perimeter of the devil's teeth so like yeah that is So picture the skull upside down, right? Like a cup, like a goblet. Sitting inside that goblet is this girl's body surrounded by weird trees and weird rocks. That's a horror movie. Like, that is not, that's not real. That's horrible. I mean, it's real. It happened. After six weeks in, I don't know what it's like in Springfield, Missouri, but in Springfield, New Jersey, 
it's fucking humid. Like, summertime from, like, June to October, humid. During that six weeks where her body was missing, and she was missing, a majority of the tissue from her body surrounding, like, her feet and her head had decomposed significantly and had also been eaten by animals. Mm-hmm. According to the Union County Medical Examiner's Office, because there is no tissue surrounding the neck anymore, it can't definitively be ruled as a strangulation, but that's what they were leaning towards at the time. And still, because it's still technically an open case. And her toxicology reports only noted that there were high amounts of lead in her blood, but they could not discern if that was pre or post-mortem. Around two weeks... After the discovery of De Palma's remains, several newspapers, including the Star-Ledger, New York Daily News, began reporting that she may have been the victim of a cult sacrifice carried out by Satanists by local coven witches who operated in the nearby Wachong Reservation, which, Nick knows, is the most terrifying part of New Jersey other than the Pine Barrens. Yes, so let's let's just pause for a second and talk about the Wachong Reservation. So imagine... You are in a commercialized part of any East Coast town. Like you drive on this one two-lane highway in either direction. There is every store in existence, every chain restaurant in existence. However, if while you're driving, you take one of the exits, you just suddenly find yourself in the middle of pitch black woods where there's windy roads that are just big enough to let one car through each Mm. way. But otherwise, it's miles and miles of untouched marshland and forest. But also, in conjunction with that, it is not conjecture that these Satanist rituals have occurred in in the Wachong Reservation. They are fact. They have been reported, witnessed, and spotted by multiple residents of surrounding towns of Springfield, Mountainside, and Summit. Yeah, I don't I don't doubt it. And also, you know how like back in the day homosexuals used to meet in woods to hook up? Yeah, I can confirm that happened in the Watch Home Reservation too. Not because I did it. <laughs> First hand homo account, yes. I want has I want to make it wanna make it very clear that I would not do that because Fucking, I'm too scared of ticks and other large insects, but I have confirmation, and that's all you need to know. It's on a need-to-know basis, and nobody needs to know. Also, I mean, this is 1972. We're right on the cusp of the beginning of Satanic Panic. Yes, um, and we will definitely get there. Yeah, it's creepy. It, it gets worse. It only gets worse. So the coverage was spurred by the reports of the body being found surrounded by strange objects and the theory that the De Palmas family, they belonged like this weird church called the Assemblies of God Evangel Church. It was like super creepy and like culty. The family didn't talk to anybody. They were very much aloof and like they kept to themselves. It's very strange that this would occur because 10 months prior, Tori, the John Liss murders happened. Yes. Which happened in a neighboring town literally five minutes away. Uh, Well, correct, but funny that you brought that up. Just put a pin in that. Right. That's a placeholder for something to come. Mm -hmm. So according to Dr. Cyril H. Wecht, who is one of the leading 
medical examiners and toxicologists, the high amounts of lead found, po- yeah, found post-mortem can be attributed to a cross-contamination from Jeanette's father's auto-wrecking business, according to the Devil's Teeth podcast, which, if you haven't heard it, listen to it. It's amazing. It's very comprehensive. And it has been said that um, this is not a cult murder at all, but maybe young kids getting high in the woods and possibly accidentally overdosing on something weird because high lead counts in the 70s were also found in spray paint. Another weird thing about the assemblies of Church of God that Jeanette's family belonged to, she, quote unquote, was a drug and alcohol counselor, which basically means when people called in the church, she was basically like a hotline operator. At 16, like, what a we like, who would trust a 16-year-old being like, I'm addicted to drug and, drugs and alcohol? And she's like, same, but not really. Early in the investigation, Springfield Police Department received a tip regarding a homeless man living in the woods, and he was also a caddy for Baldestronic. Okay. So his, his name was actually not known or released, so everybody just called him Red. And he actually had a campsite not too far from where her body was found. And then when they found his campsite, all of his stuff was still there. Like, the pot in which he was cooking his food still had food in it. The lead initially looked promising until Union County Prosecutor's Office ultimately decided that Red had nothing to do with Jeanette's death. Investigators continued to attempt to find leads, but due to incompetent police work, along with inconsistent stories told by her friends and peers, the case eventually technically is cold. But here's the thing. There's actually a book that I lent research material to called Death on the Devil's Teeth by Jesse P. Pollock. So I reached out to him in regards to the incompetencies of the Springfield Police Department. So we actually have an official quote from the author if you guys are interested. Heck yes! Okay, so Nick... This is where you're going to have to put your angry pants on, but hold on to your hat, okay? Okay. According to Jesse P. Pollock, I think more of an effort should have been made to ensure the cold case files were not lost or destroyed. Springfield claims to have lost their files and evidence in seven feet of water during the flood, Hurricane Floyd. At one point, they were supposedly storing evidence for murder cases in brown paper grocery bags. Okay. Uh, Hold on, hold on. It gets worse. Okay. That is is honestly ridiculous and shows the lack of care taken by the department. Union County Prosecutor's Office has been able to locate some of the files for me, including the original wanted poster for Red the Caddy. But they've also admitted to me that they cannot find Jeanette's crime scene photos. Hello. Something that should have been preserved very, very carefully and weren't. At some point, both departments are going to have to face the fact that they were either too stupid to take care of these items or didn't care enough. And for two organizations that are tasked with protecting the citizens of Union County, New Jersey, who pay their salaries with their hard-earned tax dollars, to be so callous and indifferent regarding the life of an innocent child is honestly disgusting to me. Um, okay. So sure. here, here are my thoughts. Uh, okay. <laughs> so first of all, um, as, as we've already painted the picture, Springfield is pretty small and to like, really just to kind of like paint a visual picture for you, mm-hmm. I could drive to Ashley's house in five minutes. It was mm-hmm. probably like a half an hour walk, maybe. Yes. Um, we were probably 
like from Ashley's house, 20 to 30 minute walk from our high school, from my house, like five, 10 minutes tops to the high school. Mm-hmm. However, on the opposite side of the block from the high school is the one and only joint fire department slash police department building. Next to that is the first eight squad. Next to that is the Springfield Public Library. It's all within like one half of a block radius. So my question is, to my knowledge, none of those buildings have basements. So the fuck are they talking about? Wait, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. 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 That brings us to our next point on the subject. So due to improperly handling the evidence, including, but not limited to, this is what really gets my fucking turkey, Jeanette's clothing, the actual samples that held any sort of evidence as to what happened to this poor girl were too degraded to have proper DNA samples taken from them. And this is in large part to the Springfield Police Department attempting to rid the clothing of smells of decomposition by hanging them outside from the air conditioner units on the fucking no, roof. No, they didn't. No. What the fuck? In so- addition to this, wait, in addition to this, they also degraded because they shipped them literally in like a fucking envelope to DC for testing. Okay. And by that police. point, the I'm samples were unusable. Call the police. They're not going to help. <laughs> <laughs> I just... I'm confused because I'm I'm confused. I I am Confucia. Okay, so Confucia, tell me why you're confused, and okay. maybe I can help you debunk this. So um, I'm mostly just confused because I I'm not surprised that especially in the 70s there was some incompetencies within the Springfield Police Department because Lord knows during our childhood and you know teenage rearing it wasn't much better, but. If you're trying to rid clothing of the smell of decomposition, there are residential houses on either side of the fire department slash police department building. Yes. And no one thought to themselves, let's not do this because we're going to be throwing the smell of rotting body into people's homes. I don't think they were thinking that far ahead. I but, clearly, I, yeah, and and I know I know we talk about this all the time, but like hashtag basic human decency, or even basic human competency. Like yeah. use your fucking common sense. How are they not worried the clothes were going to come into contact with something else that'll compromise any evidence they could get? Right, because they clearly weren't thinking to hang a poor deceased woman's clothes from an air conditioner unit outside. Right. All the things do not add up. And like if it was during quote unquote September heat wave, that AC would have been essentially throwing condensation into the clothing. Lord knows it gets fucking humid as fuck in Springfield. Yeah, no. And, with that condensation, wouldn't you also consider getting mold on those clothes, too? Mold, critters. What if it rains? Um, I mean, it might yeah, have I was September in New Jersey. I say rain. Ugh, oh. Lord. So, tomorrow, September 19th, marks the 47th anniversary of this girl 
being missing and found. Mm -hmm. And in that time, most of Jeanette's family, including both of her sisters, have now passed, um, leaving the case wide open as well as ice cold. But wait, I may have a connection. Okay. Similarities of the case relating to the disappearance, subsequent murder of Joan Kramer of South Orange, New Jersey, are kind of linked to this crime. Have you heard of Joan Kramer? I haven't, but I was just thinking more so like South Orange is 20 minutes from Springfield, probably. But here's the thing. In an interview with Ed Kish, he had not heard about the murder of Joan Kramer, which to me sounds like hogwash because, hi, the New York Times actually wrote an article about her disappearance. But we'll get there. In 1972, there was no interdepartmental communication. I mean, okay, so yes, that is true, but Lord knows the entirety of northern New Jersey is like a fucking rumor mill. So Yes, everybody knows everybody, and we will get to that, because I actually have a personal connection to this, which is weird. I mean, I will call bullshit, but I won't call it yet. Due to her affluent status, the Kramer case actually escalated to a full-blown manhunt in comparison to that of Jeanette De Palma. She was rich and white, basically. That's her affluent status, rich and white. Yes. You're yes. correct, yeah. Yes, you are correct. Her dad, like, owned a supermarket as well as, like, a meat facility, from what I read. Mm. So, on Monday, August 28th, 1972, just after Jeanette has gone missing, her naked body was found in an Elizabeth River Park. Joan disappeared eight days after Jeanette and six miles away from her body. Both are suspected to be murdered by strangulation. Joan Kramer is actually confirmed. But in conjunction with that, both their shoes and necklaces were taken. Oh. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a lot of connections. Now, were they, like, physically similar? Did they have, like, the same kind of look? Yes, they did. They were both average height. What are you, Tori, 5'4"? Yes, ma'am. So there, I mean, that is the actual average American height of a woman. They were both average height, average build, if not slender, dark brown hair, middle part. So, mm-hmm. in addition to that, a 40-year-old Maplewood, New Jersey accountant has been arrested and charged with the murder of 24-year-old Joan Kramer in 1972. Interesting. And isn't, Nicholas, isn't your lineage also from Maplewood, as is mine? My lineage is from Maplewood. See? Connections. 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 Joan Kramer was actually a grad student at Columbia. She actually got into an altercation with her fiancé on the phone, and she immediately called her best friend and was like, hey, she said she was in Newark, which is not factual. She was actually a mile from her house. Okay. And... She's like, it's fine. Um, I'm just going to head home. I'm just going to, you know, catch a cab and I'll be there soon because they had plans to meet up later in the evening. Joan Kramer never made it home. Joan Kramer was picked up at the cab stand by an unknown male. Huh. August 28th, her body was found right near a water-filled ditch in Union Township. So right by where we lived. Literally right by where we live, like next town over. So. You might be getting into this, but I am hearing patterns of being near mass transit. Semi-bingo. 
Why did she lie about where she was? It's still undisclosed. Nobody really knows. Maybe she had plans to meet up with somebody else and she didn't want anybody to know. But that's, you know, we got to chalk that up to something we'll never actually know the answer to. So this is according to the New York Times. The suspect was identified yesterday, keeping this in mind, by Assistant Prosecutor Anthony Matone of Essex County as Otto Neal Nielsen. He was picked up late Friday at his home at 173 Maplewood Avenue, which also served as his accounting office. He is to be arraigned uh, by Essex County Court tomorrow. She was also missing for 13 days before her body was found. She actually went missing August 15th, where she walked out of her home at 65 Crest Drive in South Orange. It's also reported that she may have been leaving work at the time. Have you heard of George's Restaurant, Nick? Actually, yeah, I think I've eaten there. Okay, so that's where she had been working when she called her best friend after arguing with her fiancé. Okay. And said, you know, I'm I'm headed home. So keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. She walked about a mile to the center of South Orange Business District, according to police, which I don't know how they would actually know because yeah, it's they yeah. don't have any actual account of where she was. Yeah, and it's um, not like they would have had cameras anywhere. I don't even know if they do now. It's literally a bunch of intersections. Right. A witness had reported, however, that they had seen her get picked up by a man in an automobile, which I think was reported to be a green Buick. Hmm. Yes. It was up on Sloan Street in South Orange. So I don't okay. know if you know where that is. I don't really know where it is because I moved away shortly after I started driving. So I don't know um, too much about that area. Yeah, no, I, I don't My know. My mom ex- does. Yeah, no, I don't know exactly where that is, but basically using the restaurant as a landmark she yes. was probably like a block to two blocks from like the main drag of downtown i think you're correct something like so, that so according to the new york times after three days of jury deliberation nielsen was actually acquitted of the crime due to a tape being played a mysterious voice attempting to extort funds from the wealthy essex county family so it was like some guy that was using a fake accent actually called the Kramer family and was like, hey, like, we have your daughter. We want $15,000 in cash, and this is where you can drop the money. He called and persisted several times, and South Orange police had a tape of it. But they tried to say that because the voices didn't match on the tape, that it wasn't Otto Nielsen. Um, okay. Um, it's the 70s, man. Uh, yeah. Right? Shoddy fucking police work. Shoddy um, fucking police work. And because of that, the evidence against him was deemed insufficient, even though he was both spotted in the area more than once, prowling that area, and then also matched an artist's rendering of the suspect given by the eyewitness. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. So Otto Nielsen was eventually, he had a long history of mental instability and domestic violence because he was a veteran. I'm not saying that that's inherently the cause or all veterans are like that. But in this specific case, they're attributing his violent behavior and past to him being a veteran. Okay. Um, So he was arrested, tried and acquitted of the murder. But he was also a person of interest in the double murder of Mary Pryor and Lorraine Kelly, who were also found both strangled and sexually mutilated. 
Yeah, they were both sexually assaulted. And but that's the only difference between the Jeanette De Palma case and the Pryor and Kelly cases. Yeah. Because after further examination of Jeanette's clothing, they found out that she was actually not sexually assaulted, which had been like a long-standing theory associated with this case. Okay. Do you know where the other two women were found? I don't know offhand really quick, but I know they were also found in close proximity to where she was found. All right. Well, like within miles of each other. Th- this certainly sounds like escalation. Especially because they were strangled with their stockings. Mm-hmm. And so was Joan Kramer. Otto Nilsson was later remanded to the state psychiatric hospital following an armed standoff at a veterans hospital. And during that time period and prior, he had a long history of alcohol abuse. He eventually passed away in 1992 in a state mandated psychiatric facility in Trenton. And here's the weird thing. My mom, (laughs) Nick, as you know, Allison, Allison knows everybody somehow knows everybody. Allison and Nick's mom, Camille, actually worked together. So you probably also subsequently, through lineage of Maplewood, know the Nielsen family. Because my mom went to school with Otto Nielsen's kids. Oh, okay. All right. Right. Yeah. So isn't that... And she remembers through, like, playing with these kids, because my mom was nine years old, mm-hmm. remembers when Otto Nielsen was arrested and remembers playing at the apartment that he was arrested in with Tammy Nielsen and his oldest son, Otto Nielsen, well, Neil Nielsen, who was the owner of the Green Buick. So, yeah, that's basically, like, the connection that I personally have to this case, other than dedicating, like, a year of my life researching it to fucking graduate high school. But, yeah, because my mom was like, oh, my God, Otto Nielsen, I know his kids. Neil Nilsson, who is the oldest, my mom actually witnessed him getting into a car accident and passing away. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, like, my God. There's, there's a lot of gore associated with that. These are stories that my mom told me as a small child. And I feel like that's a main reason why I'm so fucked up in the head. I mean. Thanks for I, all the trauma, Allison. Thanks for the trauma, Allison. I just feel like it's very, it, it, it's it's really hard to grow up where we grew up and um, not be touched by darkness in some way. Do you know what I mean? Because like, even just living in the area, even if you're like living on the hill in the McMansions and shit, you are basically living in a potential horror movie scenario all the time. Ugh, dude. I had to house sit for somebody up there after I saw The Strangers. Oh, no. And I literally (laughs) thought I was going to fucking die. Like, up there, Tori, there are no streetlights whatsoever. Yeah, which is fucking stupid because you know what rich kids with fucking high-powered cars do? Speed around corners. It's like Tokyo Drift up there. I don't know. I feel like the most egregious thing about this whole situation... Is the lack of, besides communication interdepartmentally, which we can kind of forgive, the Union County Prosecutor's Office, in conjunction with the Westfield Police Department, after the John Liss murders, were convinced that Jeanette De Palma's death had to do with satanic panic 
because Patty List, who was one of the victims of the List family murders, mm-hmm. quote unquote, was a witch by her own admission. Okay. And was that the wife or the or the mother? That was the daughter. That was the daughter. That was the daughter. She went to Westfield High School. So the, the so the teenage daughter. 16. Same age as Jeanette. She Paul. didn't know what the fuck she was talking about. No! You know what? what I understand from John List is that he was super religious. So yeah, that's like a 16-year-old rebellious thing. Like, fuck you, dad. I'm a witch. But then Literally. Like, yeah, basically. Because she, she was not going anywhere and practicing any type of Wiccan or witchcraft. Especially in Westfield. Nah, that wasn't happening. No, no thank Westfield, you. Westfield is weird as fuck. And this is where you come in, Tori. Oh, I, I cannot wait. I am so excited. We are going to be staying in New Jersey and we are going to be in Westfield. And now I want to uh, blame this story on Nick because he brought it up in the episode of Fact vs. Film that I was just on for Copulators Die First. Mm-hmm. And I had always heard the story, but I didn't know a lot about it. And before we started recording, Nick had said this similar thing. Like he had heard the story and he'd never really like researched or looked into it. Yeah, and and then I did, and then I did, and I was like, whoa, okay, cool. (laughs) My main sources for this story are going to be Reddit. I got on Zillow to look at the house. I used the Today Show and Vice, but my main, main source is an article from thecut.com written by Reeves Weidman. This person actually did an interview with the family involved in this story. It's kind of like the definitive guide. And what I'm talking about, you guys, is the Watcher's house. First of all, I want to apologize if you guys can hear bugs in the background. I'm actually sitting outside because my signal is terrible in the house. And uh, it's a gorgeous night, so I'm going to enjoy it. Maybe there's someone watching me out here. Don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) This is honestly, though, I deal with a lot of scary. I deal with a lot of gore. I deal with a lot of sad. This is the scariest story, if it's true, that I've ever looked into. I was texting Ashley. I'm like, up, oh, closing all of the blinds in my house forever. I mean, Netflix knew what they were doing when they bought the rights to this. So, you know. Right. I just hope, so, I hope they make a good movie. Just fingers crossed. That's all oh, I'm they saying. Will. They totally will. A little bit of background. The Watcher's house is sitting in Westfield, New Jersey. In 2014, Westfield was actually voted the 30th safest town in the United States. It's a pretty affluent area. The area that this house sits in, from my understanding, is a very coveted neighborhood. According to the 2010 census, there's a population of about 30,000 people. So it's a cute, normal, suburban-type town. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think all you really need to know about Westfield is it's affluent. So most of the families are very wealthy. And it's also uh, very white super white lots of fiscal conservatives because they like having their money agreed continue the house itself was built in 1905 the house is 3920 square feet it's your typical single family home it's built in a traditional dutch colonial style architecture there are six bedrooms and three and a half four bathrooms depending on which website you look at it sits on almost half an acre lot It was renovated in 2014. Also, side note, okay, olive green 
and beige walls, okay, that feed into a yellow kitchen. It's so 2004, I fucking hate it. The mm. inside could be so pretty, but it's like, ew, why are you having this, like, green, gray, I'm going to call it, like, grayish, like, this green Ugh. beige color. It's awful. It that literally like heinous. It, it's it's the ugliest color I've ever seen. Here's the deal: the house sold when these people bought it for like 1.3, 1.4 million dollars. If I am shelling out over a mill for a house, it better not look like American Idol season one just premiered on the inside. Like <laughs> no, like you need to update that shit. Anyway, in 2014, Derek and Maria Broadus and their three children purchased their dream home in Westfield, New Jersey for about $1.4 million. And after they bought it, they began to renovate the inside of the home. Derek was at the house one night. He was working. I think he was painting, according to the article. He realizes, oh, shit, I never checked the mail today. He runs out, bringing in the mail. And in the mail, he finds a little card that's addressed to the new owner. And it starts off really, really nice and sweet. And then it gets super fucking scary. In the letters that they receive, in the notes that they receive, they refer to the house by its address. I'm not going to do that. Um, I don't want to put... The house was just sold in July, so I don't want to put somebody's address on blast. But legitimately, you can look it up and find it anywhere. The note read, Dear new neighbor at the address, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. How did you end up here? Did the address call to you with its force within uh the fuck the force within address has been subject of my family for decades now as it approaches its 110th birthday i have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming my grandfather watched the house in the 1920s and my father watched the house in the 1960s it is now my time do you know the history of the house do you know what lies within the walls of address? Why are you here? I will find out. All we have are excerpts of the letters for right now. They are part of an ongoing legal case, but the Broadus family also is trying to keep them under wraps because their children don't know about this. Excerpt goes on to say, I see already that you have flooded address with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. Tisk, tisk, tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make address unhappy. The house is crying from all the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what it used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time for address. When I ran from room to room imagining life with the rich occupants there, the house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old. So did my father. But I kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three I have counted. But there are more on the way. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and them to me. I asked the Woods, who were the previous owners of the house, to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by address each day. Maybe I'm in one. Look out all the windows you can see from address. 
maybe I am in one. Look out the many windows in address at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. The Watcher. That's a huge yeah. fuck nope for me. Yeah, welcome to the neighborhood. I'm watching you. Absolutely. That's like that is like a fuck no with a hard K. Not even a little bit. As soon as I would have got that, like, mm, yeah, we're not living here. Ever. I don't know how I would have responded to that. Oh, it's not great. Not no. great. Derek reads the letter, okay? And he's like, he has a similar reaction to me. Absolutely fucking not. And he realizes that it's dark outside and that you can totally see inside of the house right now because all of the lights are on. He runs around and he turns off the lights and then he calls the police. Now, the patrol officer that shows up made like a super professional observation after he read the note. And he deadass said, what the fuck is this? Accurate. (laughs) From what we know about Union County police work. Did I ask what the fuck is this? Sounds appropriate. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm assuming it was probably like some guy in his like probably mid to late 30s. He probably works out a lot. And that's the only extracurricular activity he has outside of being a police officer. He's probably like Irish Italian. Just, you know, that's probably the way it was going. Mm-hmm. Um. Probably the same cop that hangs out behind the Starbucks in Westfield. The only advice the officer who responded to the call could give Derek Broaddus was to move the construction equipment that was outside of the home inside the home so that it couldn't be used to break a window. That's my biggest fear. And it's so funny that you brought up the movie The Strangers. That and Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Those are the two movies I cannot watch. I cannot watch The Strangers because a home invasion is my biggest fear because you know hashtag home is where the pants aren't your home is your castle it's the one place you're supposed to feel safe and the fact that somebody could legitimately come into my home and hurt me or watch me through the window of my house absolutely fucking not everybody will tell you I'm crazy I was asleep and I woke up because I heard somebody knocking on the window of the house and I didn't have my glasses on but I woke up and the dogs, they didn't wake up immediately. But as soon as I woke up, the dogs were up. There's somebody knocking on the window of the house. I think it's my dad thinking that maybe he locked himself out or he didn't have a house key, something. Because I think that night he got home really, really late too. Maybe he just didn't have his keys in my mind. I don't know. I I was blind as fuck because I didn't have my glasses on. Same. As, as I, I grab my glasses and when I go to get my glasses, the figure's already gone. So I'm thinking it's my dad. I'm going to meet him around front. Let me unlock the door. I go and unlock the door. I walk out of the house. He's not at the door. I'm like, well, that's fucking weird. I check the other door. He's not at that door. And then I get out and I look around the house on like the side and there's nobody there. I go upstairs. My dad is in bed. That's going to be a no for me, dog. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that, that would have been like an abort mission. No, thank you. Well, like, I totally and 150% agree with you, Tori. Like, home invasion, if I could, I would sleep with a baseball bat. Because that is also my biggest fear. And conveniently enough, we covered both The Strangers and Killer Clowns on our series. This is true. We have. The thing with this story is nobody believes that there was anybody at my window. They all think I was dreaming 
kind of like in our spectrophilia episode where people were falling asleep or they were coming out of sleep. And that's totally possible. And my mom says that I was asleep because I have this Yorkie named Heidi. And I've talked about her on the show before. She's an absolute piece of shit, but I love her. Um, <laughs> she barks at everything. She's older than my youngest sister by like a month. So she has been part of this family for almost 13 years now. My brother will walk through the door. The dog will lose her fucking mind like she's never seen him before. She has seen that boy almost monthly for her entire life. Because I got her when she was eight weeks old. So I've had her her whole life. She's fucking crazy. But the dog didn't bark. That's my mom's indicator that maybe it was in my head. But it was so real. And it's such a fear of mine that somebody could be looking in my window. I didn't sleep in my room after that for a very, very, very long time. I was just so scared. But so that's where this this story has put me right there. Just thinking that somebody is now like watching and looking. After they get this first note, Derek and Maria email the previous owners. Their names are John and Andrea Woods. And they lived in the house for about 23 years. And they're both retired scientists. Andrea Woods responds to the email the next day. She says that they never had anything like that happen to them before, ever. And the entire time they lived in the house. She said that as they were leaving, they did get an odd note from somebody who referred to themselves as the watcher. It wasn't that level of threatening or scary. She said that it was kind of weird that it thanked them for taking care of the house, basically, all of these years. They just thought it was some weird prank note. They threw it away. Blah, 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 blah. Didn't think anything about it. So here's where I call bullshit, because if I ever get actual mail addressed to me from somebody I don't know... I don't care what the contents are. It, it High alert, alarm bells ringing. It concerns me that it was 2014 and they didn't have enough wits about them to be like, this is weird regardless of the content of this note. And I feel like ultimately the only things that I could potentially see having them not be concerned about this from their perspective is they're older, they're wealthy, And they live in Westfield. And when I say that, Westfield is kind of like exactly what you could picture the town from the Stepford Wives being, where everything is perfect, every lawn is manicured, people only fight in private, in public, everything is perfect. When they have town meetings, it's always about like, what's best for the aesthetic of the town? Like, it's never about personal issues. The underbelly of Westfield is very white and honestly really creepy because it's all about appearances and that really fucks with my head. It's essentially like a giant homeowners association. Yeah. You have a giant town of it. Yeah. Like it's a substantial, I think it's bigger than Springfield. uh, Oh, it's 100% bigger than Springfield, but every single person who actually is able to afford living in Westfield probably has double the funds of any regular citizen of Springfield other than the people who live on the hill in the McMansions. Absolutely. And like, ultimately, obviously, we're going to get there. And I'm sorry for stepping on your toes, Tori. But for me, this tale beyond this really ridiculous watcher thing is more so a horror of wealthy suburbia and needing to keep up appearances and how far people will go to do that. And that to me is just as horrifying as the fact that there's the watcher in existence in the story. You hit the nail on the head when you said it's a very Stepford-esque town. 
that's the entire vibe I was getting. Because when you look at pictures of this house on Zillow, yeah. it's, it's a beautiful home. And you can tell that the neighborhood is, I can see why it's so coveted and people want to live there. Like, it's gorgeous. It's yeah. an American dream. Oh, yeah. No. And like, I would personally would never want to live in Westfield just because I like being able to afford my life. But it is a lovely place to visit because they have a lot of wonderful restaurants and um, boutiques in downtown. So many boutiques. I'm pretty (laughs) sure. And I'm not exaggerating. There's like a make your own soap boutique. Yeah, there's a make your own jewelry with a cruelty free glass bead shop. There's the boutique that only sells yoga mat holders is that where the real housewives of new jersey is from very close yeah none of them are from westfield but one of them is from a town close to where we grew up also another affluent town um they're all from northern jersey which makes them i'm gonna say it nick they're they're pretty bridge and tunnel so oh um. yeah no absolutely these are all (laughs) Like, the only reason that they have the lives they have is because all of their husbands go and work in Manhattan. You know what I mean? Right. They're um, stay-at-home moochers. They're stay-at-home, uh, like, guidettes on speed. Um, it's, like, it's like if you were to take Jersey Shore and then mix it with Rugrats all grown up. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's like, yeah, no, it's definitely Jersey Shore. And then you have to throw in a sprinkle of, yes, some type of coming of age teenage show from like uh, Nickelodeon or uh, Disney Channel. But then you also have to throw in a little like a, a twinge of like the uncomfortableness of the family from like Duck Dynasty or something like that. Yeah, but here's the thing. <laughs> and I hate to say it. But Westfield in fall time is spooky girl approved. Oh my it god! Is, it's yes, absolutely. It's so it quintessential. It's so yeah. quintessentially Halloween town that it makes me angry to my soul. Yeah, and and like every every boutique smells like you know autumnal spices, and every corner you turn, there's another park filled with trees that are just showering the ground with their autumnal colored leaves. There's like a beautiful breeze. And yeah, no, it's pretty picturesque and perfect um, in the folly time. And I think that's what makes this even creepier, too, yeah. is that like some dude is doing a creepy crawl over these hoity-toity white people. Correct. But it also kind of makes me love it more. <laughs> <laughs> the Broadduses, the next day, they actually take the letter they received to the police station and they're able to speak with a detective. The detective basically told them, shut the fuck up. Which, uh, that that to me was like, do you have nothing else to do? Because you probably don't. Do your job. He told them that all of their neighbors are suspects. And if you talk about this, then you are giving people information. We want somebody to slip up, basically. Also rumored that he was telling them to shut the fuck up because Westfield is picture perfect. And they don't need this kind of bad publicity. So, yeah. And, and like, uh, from a police work perspective, I get where he's coming from with, like, not divulging details to the neighbors because that does make sense. But it's also convenient that in this town where, to this day, appearances are very important, that when something actually fucked up happens, when, you know, you have to actually put the money where your mouth is that they don't do it and try to sweep it under a rug. 
I feel for the Broadus family. I really do. But at the same time, Maria's family is from Westfield. She grew up there, which means her family is wealthy. When you come back and then you buy a $1.4 million house, this is certainly unexpected happenings. But at the same time, a part of me doesn't feel super bad for them because in a way, this is kind of hashtag first world problems. Oh, I'm so wealthy. Wah, wah, wah. But shit does get fucked up a little bit more on the outset of this whole thing. Looking in from that perspective, clearly Derek has worked hard to earn the money that they're using to live their lives. But they also have the funds to continue to do everything they do the entire time. And for that, I'm like, well, then you're super comfortable. The woe is me act is not as effective with me. About two weeks after the first letter arrived, Maria stops by the house and she wants to check the mail. She finds a another letter from the neighborhood creeper and it is addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Braddis. It's supposed to be Broadus, but it's spelled phonetically. Mm-hmm. So the watcher now knows their name, which means either he is hearing people say, did you meet the new neighbors, the Broadduses? Or he's close enough to where he can hear the construction crew talk to Mr. and Mrs. Broadus. Yeah. Now it says fucking creepy. Yeah, it's fucking creepy. Yeah. And it says, welcome again to your new home at address. I am pleased to know your names now and the names of the young blood that you have brought me. You certainly say their names often. Then this creepy motherfucker uses the nicknames of the children and he's able to tell the Broadus family who is oldest and who is the youngest. Like he knows their names in the order that they were born. He then asks about one child that he saw using an easel to do some art out on the porch. And this house has like two porches and a thousand fireplaces. The porch where this kid was doing the art at was actually um, an enclosed porch with a fireplace. It's like perfect. It's like my dream. Mm -hmm. The writer asks, is she the artist in the family? The easel on the porch is not visible from the street and it's hidden by like shrubs and trees. So he's close enough to see the child where you can't see the kid from the street. The rest of the letter goes on to say, address is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It's far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It'll help me know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors and address allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher, and I have been in control of address for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 
address is my job, my life, my obsession, and now you are too, Broadus family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to address, and it has now brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I'll be watching. You can fuck right off with that. I know. Like, you can't see me right now, but I'm, like, doing a little happy jig because... Oh, it's so scary. Oh, but I love it. I love, like, I think if this even happened to me, I would be like, oh, my God, it's finally happening. I'm in my own horror movie. (laughs) My time has come and my body is ready. My body is ready. But, like, okay. So peeling, peeling back a few of the layers here, it's obviously very clear that someone has been as you said eavesdropping on them specifically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um also in the enclosed porches of houses that are this old like as i'm sure you can picture it there is probably a part of this room where it's netted off but there's also probably at least a few feet of wood from the ground to like mid uh waist height so Either they are above in a window or a wooded area above the back of the house, or they're fucking like sneaking around the house, fucking oh, Spider-Man God, or something. I just can't. I'm literally getting chills because you cannot see that from the street. Yeah, yeah. It's like it is not the visible. back of the house. Yeah, exactly. So that is fucking shitballs crazy. Oh, God. And so yeah. here's the thing. I don't have children. Mm-hmm. But none of us, none of us do. <laughs> I, none of us do. But I've helped raise my little sisters from the day they were born, and I'm basically my mom says I'm mommy number two. Mm-hmm. So the fact that someone would know my children's name and the order that they're born and where they are in my house, because the Broadduses were setting up a basement as a play area for those children, so the watcher knew that. The fact that he would know where my fucking kids were going to be playing and that, that if they screamed, I would never hear them. I am getting chills just talking about it. Like, my arms, legit goosebumps right now. Like, I am just thinking, because when I go to Walmart on a Saturday and I have my two little sisters with me, I am a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Because it's fucking crazy and it's busy and I don't want somebody to take these kids. Now, granted, Melissa's 14 now. Samantha's 12. I don't have to like watch them as hard as I did when they were itty bitty. But I think the Broadduses, I think their oldest kid was like 10 when this was happening. They were like six, eight and 10 or something like that. The other thing like from the mom, this is the second letter. The first letter already had skeezed her out enough that she was already hyper helicopter mom. I also read the article from the cut and I was just picturing in my head how over the course of, you know, the weeks between the two letters, she was probably screaming at her kids, stay in her sight. And then for her to know that her doing that, let the, whoever the watcher is, like, she basically told this person the names of her children by trying to Mm. keep track of them. That part for me would be parental guilt that I don't know if I could deal with. The second letter it's like zero to a hundred, up the ante, fire right. under the bucket burner. We have gone way above and beyond semi-creepy shit. You are now threatening people's lives, insinuating that there's potentially wrongdoings that happened in this house previously. You're also insinuating that you're around. You are, quote, undetectable because apparently you're good at being a watcher or whatever. But like, 
you have seen and observed he's or she he or she is basically saying like this has just begun boo no no it's over (laughs) done for me you can have the fucking house i will continue to make the mortgage payment you can fucking have it just don't take my children (laughs) yeah the, the whole young blood thing is super skeevy and they get a third fucking letter where have you gone to address is missing you nope fuck no yeah address is turning on me it is coming after me i don't understand why what spell did you cast on it it used to be my friend and now it is my enemy i am in charge of address it is not in charge of me i will fend off the bad things and wait for it to become good again it will not punish me I will rise again. I will be patient and I will wait for this to pass. You will bring the young blood back to me. Address needs a young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play like I want. Let the young blood sleep in address. Stop changing it and let it alone. Oh, I don't like it. Tori. Scaring myself again. I, I fucking wrote this. It's, and I know uh, it's coming, and I'm still getting scared. It's like why if, do we like why do we continuously do this to ourselves? Like we are grown adults, we should be able to handle this. And then it's like spooky season campfire story time, and we all just fucking lose our wits. But also, uh, I have I a theory know. as to who it could be. I have a couple of theories. I'm gonna hold off until we've come to the completion of the story. But the one thing I do want to point out is that between the second and then the letters after that, being a medical professional myself, this is very clearly a breakdown of this person's mental state. And the topics that they're repeating are very specific. They're talking about money. There is some type of problem with money, whether it be some type of envy or hatred towards wealthy individuals. But considering it's Westfield, that's probably not it because they are also probably living in the area. But maybe it's not their money, but their parents' money or something like that. Beyond any of that, there's clearly specifically an obsession with this house, with this person. I think like the young blood stuff, all of those semi-hollow threats that aren't like fully, I'm going to take your children from you type of situations. I think it's really extraneous details to the fact that there is someone in the neighborhood that needs some help. And for some reason, this house became their obsession, whether it be that there's a specific vendetta to try to get the Broaduses out of this place, or it's just someone that's having a mental breakdown. It is someone close in proximity Like, I want to meet this person. Like, I want to know their story. Because it's fascinating. You want to have a why. The Broadduses want to have a why as well. So when the house got put on the market, the previous owners, the Woodses, they said that they had a few offers that were over the asking price, which for such a really nice neighborhood, I don't think is all that uncommon. No. So the Broadduses had a theory that who's ever sending these letters is someone who's pissed that they missed out on getting to buy the house. And this is a ploy to get the Broadduses out of the house so they could swoop in and put in an offer, which is, that's what I would think, you know, other than creepy, scary stalker, that would have been my next thought. 
Mm-hmm. Also, like, I don't know if the article from the cut disclosed this, but Westfield Public School District is, like, one of the best in the state. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So one of my theories is this type of suburban sociopath who is really just trying to fuck with them because they feel the need to for one reason or another. And it could be because they want the house. It could be because they, you know, didn't get it. But it could also just be that maybe the broadest family rubs whoever this is the wrong way. And there's this mentality, like especially in Westfield, where like there are clear lineages and families that live there because they've lived there a long time because they have old money. And it's unfortunately very much sadly uncomfortably like we don't want quote riffraff in our neighborhood because it'll bring down the property value so it could be that they posed that to the woods who were the previous owners and the woods said that there were three authors there's the one from the broadest then there was another family and then there was a i believe it was an older couple and the older couple had to pull their offer because they got a pretty devastating medical diagnosis that would have made moving and purchasing a new home impossible for them. And then the family, other than the Broadduses that put in the offer on the home, they ended up pulling their offer as well because they found another house that they liked better. So it kind of ended up to the Broadduses by default. For the people who put in an offer on the home at that time, it doesn't look like it was anybody whose offer was potentially accepted that would have been doing this. And then the other thing about this is that the first letter that the Broadduses received was distributed from the local post office on June 4th, which was before the sale was being made public. The Woods had never posted a for sale sign in the yard. Everything was handled through their realtor. The person who sent the letter sent the letter before all of the public information about the sale went through. And it would have had to be somebody that knew the house was for sale. And also, they're close enough because they know that when the home was purchased, the renovations were going on. The renovations were mostly happening inside of the home versus outside. But then again, if you see a bunch of carpenter or electrical trucks in front of a house, I think you can just assume that renovations were going on inside. You don't have to see into the window. The fact that they put these through the actual mail system is so ridiculous to me. I understand, like, maybe you don't want to be seen. I don't know. I wouldn't want to trust the mail with important stuff like this. The thing with the watcher, and I think why the watcher did that was because it'll postmark from a certain area. So that means within a tri-county ring, you could have mailed that note. So it kind of gives them a little more anonymity because they could be from any one of these areas. Because if they walked up and put it into the mailbox, obviously they risk being seen. But then they know it's somebody who is right fucking here. I Mm. think the idea of sending it through the mail is a little more scare factor that it could be anybody in any of the surrounding areas. It widens the net of scary. Yeah, it does. But the details are too specific. Like it has to be somebody close by. No, I think you're 100% right. Yeah. But there isn't much evidence in the case right the police end up interviewing a local man who was a bit of a recluse and this is 
a member of the Langford family. The Langford family had lived in the neighborhood since the 60s. So it kind of works with what the watcher said. It was a mother who was in like her 90s and all of her children still lived with her. I think the kids were in like their 60s and 70s. One brother who had some kind of mental disorder, he's a little off, the neighbors call him. They described him in the cut article as a Boo Radley type. He's mostly harmless. He definitely wanted to know what was going on. Like if somebody was doing renovations, he was known to walk up and look in the windows to see what was going on inside of that house. But he was genuinely like harmless. One of the neighbors ends up telling the family about these these people. And the Broadduses take that information to the police. But the neighbor, because they were at the barbecue when they were told this, the neighbor at the barbecue said, but honestly, though, he's like really nice. He goes and gets me my newspaper every morning. He's just a little quirky. It's kind of mm-hmm. how it was described. That is really their only target for this information. You know, they, they're trying to like meet their neighbors. They're trying to kind of get to know everybody in the neighborhood. They end up giving a tour of the house to some people who live down the block. And as they're giving the tour of the house, the woman who is touring the house with her husband, she tells Derek Broaddus, oh, you guys are doing such a really great job in these renovations. It'll be nice to have some young blood back in the neighborhood. Ooh, no! Yeah. So that, like, makes him, like, stop dead in his tracks. He's got that comment from her. He's got the Boo Radley person that literally lives, like, next door to him. He's thinking, holy fucking shit, this watcher could be anybody. And that's, like, the first time it really clicks into his mind that it could honestly be anybody. Yeah. They tried to investigate this on their own. And they hired a private investigator. They did a couple things. First of all, they did a scream test. So they had Maria yell like how she would yell for the kids, had her yell from like the porch to figure out which houses in the area that you would be at where you could hear her scream. Like how far would you have to go before you could not hear her anymore? One night, Derek actually stayed at the house and he was just crouching in the darkness the whole time, hoping to catch somebody lurking around the property. They did hire the private investigator. They also reached out to the FBI. Now, I don't know if this part is true. It was in the Cut article. So I'm going to say that he probably did a little research. But it said that he reached out to the FBI agent who was the inspiration for Clarence Starling and Hannibal Lecter. Because they sat on, like, the same, like, school co-op board. He knew her. And then she had put him in touch with former FBI agent Robert Lenahan. And Robert Lenahan conducted a threat assessment on the letters. He stated he believed the writer to be an older person due to the style of the writing. And uh, I'm taking this directly. This is verbatim from the cut article here. It says the envelope was addressed to M slash M Broadus. The salutations included days weather, warm and humid, sunny and cool for a summer day. And the sentences had double spaces between them. The letters had a certain literary panache, which suggested a ferocious reader and a surprising lack of profanity given the level of anger, which Lehman thought meant a less macho writer. Maybe he wondered, the Watcher had seen the movie The Watcher, starring Keanu Reeves, as a serial killer who stalks a detective trying to catch him. 
I, but you know what? That is something I didn't notice, though. The lack of profanity in the letters. They are scary, and he doesn't cuss one time. He's not, like, he's getting his aggression across in probably a more terrifying way than it's like, I'm going to fucking kill you and your fucking family. Like, it's scarier than that. I, I also think that whoever this is has taken a lot of time in crafting their character for lack of a better term the watcher is an entity to them maybe they the the person who's writing the letters may not even see themselves as the watcher in their everyday life the clock strikes five or whatever and like i am the watcher like that's obviously a very crude description of what i'm trying to portray here but i totally agree with you it seems like person with maybe like a dissociative identity disorder I, I where know, yeah either way they're there's able to here. yeah Just, there's got to yeah. be something but i mean my I, I don't know i had a theory and i think i might just chuck it out the window but like the only thing that i could think of is like it would have to be somebody that would interact with these people semi-regularly maybe a construction worker or a contractor that hears these things and picks them up Especially in regards to hearing children's names, pronunciation of of the family name. I don't know. I'm not an expert. Well, again, I I have a couple of theories, but um, I really don't think it was the neighbors, the the family with the 90-year-old mom. I don't think it was them. No. And I mean, and the police hit them pretty hard. Like, they were all brought in for questioning eventually down the line they're they're able to do some kind of dna testing on the stamp and they can see that the stamp was by uh was licked by a woman they are convinced that you know there is a sister that lives in the house and they set up this sting operation because she works at the mall they were able to get her water bottle and tested and it it was not a match on dna so they are able to rule out this family and eventually the family's like y'all gotta stop talking to us because we ain't fucking doing nothing this is like borderline harassment the police were on these people yeah, they, and hot to cold. We'll do nothing, we'll do everything. Except, let's be honest, once this story became viral, then of course the Westfield Police Department was like, oh, I guess we should do something because we're like, you know, appearances, appearances. Robert Lenahan, the FBI agent, he suggested that they look into former housekeepers or perhaps the descendants that could be jealous that the Broadduses bought the house and then couldn't. But this, honestly, it becomes just completely an obsession for Derek and Maria, because how could it not? It mm-hmm. invades every every corner of their psyche. They start to dream about it. They are looking at, at people in public, and they're like, is it fucking you? Is it fucking you? They grow paranoid and suspicious of all of their neighbors. They're helicoptering their kids like crazy. Maria is actually diagnosed with PTSD at this point. The police only have a couple other suspects. Um, Upon looking at the neighborhood, they realized that there were two child sex offenders near where the house was. And, you know, they keep bringing up the young blood, the young blood. But they investigate those predators and they are not the ones behind the letters. And then there's a couple that live directly behind the home. And one of the construction workers noticed that they kept a table and chairs at the corner of their property facing the broadest house, like as close to the broadest house as also facing the broadest house. And they only noticed that because the house painter saw an old omitting in those chairs near the property line staring at the broadest house. 
That could be anything. He could be the watcher because he's older. But I remember when I lived in California a million years ago, my grandparents would sit in their garage and they would have the garage door open and they would just stare out into the street and look at all the cars that passed. So I don't know if he's just watching the construction in the house or if he's watching, watching the house. Yeah, no, I I think they're just nosy old people, to be honest. I agree. I feel like that's just an old person activity, just watching the hood, you know what I mean? I have a weird memory of my grandparents. I don't know if I'm making it up in my head because I was really, really little. But I think they used to count the cars, like the colors of the cars that drove by. I mean, that could just be in a weird old people quirk. Yeah, either I'm making that up or they did that. But I have a distinct memory of like a pad of paper with colors written down and tally marks by those. Like, I, I'm crazy. I don't know. Are your grandparents the watcher? <laughs> Well, they're both dead, so... So that's even creepier. Even creepier that they're still watching. Yeah. Um, Ooh, yuck. They're doing all the renovations on the house, and they put in the security system, obviously. Derek looks into getting a, um, like, attack dog, like a German Shepherd attack dog. And he even put in an ad, I think in a local paper, for uh, retired military veterans to just come over. Like, all they would have to do is work out in the yard every day. What? Just what the so, fuck? That's so weird. A really great security measure, or he's got a daddy kink, and he's just not admitting it to his wife yet. I mean, no, it's security, babe. It's for, I just want these <laughs> rippling older silver foxes to right. go and work out in our yard. Girl, there, there, there are certainly some repressed homosexual men who feel like they are trapped in their heterosexual family life in Westfield because it is very much one of those places where everything has to be squeaky clean, in place, you know. Of course, there are homosexuals in Westfield, but of the older generation, I run guarantee you that they're all tea all shade right all about it so there's that going back to like the eccentricities of rich people like only (laughs) a rich person would do that here's a good idea let's hire somebody to work out in our backyard because that'll help right like what are you paying like i'll do it right but we'll make it work i mean whatever i'll i'll work out you can watch me work out i'm not like a silver daddy or anything and i probably won't tickle you know your upper crust white bread fantasy but like shit if you're paying right (laughs) shit i i'd even do it but there'd be a caveat that it would have to be an 80s style workout video and probably olivia newton john's let's get physical would have to be blasting get out of my head i think that's fair so you know what can i venmo you like 15 dollars, and can you make that video for me i mean we could make that happen but now i'm thinking about it that would probably scare some people away not for the reasons that we all think (laughs) But like, you know, that could be fun. Yeah. After they get the renovations done, they put the security system in. They decide, you know what? It's not worth risking our children. So they do not move into the home. Yeah. Probably the smartest thing they did. They end up moving in with Maria's parents. And this all happens within six months. Like this is just a six month period of just terror for these people. And they decide, you know, we are going to put the house on the market because there's they were living in their old home. They sold their house. They had to move in. So at some point, they were paying for the mortgage on the home that they had. They're paying the mortgage on the home in Westfield. And they're paying the frequent property tax and everything in Westfield. So they're just hemorrhaging money at this point. Mm-hmm. They move in with Maria's parents. They put the house on the market. 
And unfortunately, a local crime writer ends up getting the story of the Watcher. He publishes a story. And that's not that big of a deal. But then the Today Show picks it up and the story goes viral. Now, it's a double-edged sword. Because now people know you're getting these fucking creepy-ass letters at your house. But there were so many comments saying, well, that's a gorgeous house. I wouldn't let a couple creepy letters stop me from moving in there. They think that they have a pretty good chance of selling this home. And so they are, they're pissed at the previous owners, the Woodses. They're saying it's a disclosure issue. That the Woods got a letter and they didn't tell them about the letter they got. So what they decide they're going to do is they are going to put out excerpts. And that's what we've been reading here. They put out these excerpts of the letters. And if you make a serious offer on the home, we'll give you the full letters. And you can decide for yourself from there if you want to continue with the sale. So they're trying to be really open about this. Like, this is what's going on so you can make an informed decision. Because they feel like they did not get that opportunity with the house when they bought it. They have a very successful open house. Lots of people come and check it out. And lots of people come check it out because it has now gone viral. So people want to see. They end up getting one offer on the house. And Derek describes him in the Cut article as this cocky guy from New Jersey. Or New York, excuse me. He's a cocky guy from New York. And Derek gives him a copy of the letters. They never hear from him again. Yeah, specifically, he's a cocky guy from Staten Island. And um, (laughs) I, I, well, the only reason I bring that up is because I live here on Staten Island. And I know exactly the type of person that this guy is. He is like a dime a dozen. Also bridge and tunnel, but we carry on. Yeah. Then they are like, fuck, what do we do? They decide that, well, you know what? A property developer will buy anything. So we can sell this to a property developer. They find a developer. They're ready to make the sale. The developer wants to knock down the house and split the lot into two lots to build two different houses. Problem is the lot is going to be about three feet short of what the city ordinance for a lot like the the lots have to be like 70 feet wide I believe or 70 feet long or something to that effect I can't remember what it is but the lot was going to end up being like 67.4 and then like 67 point something else like it wasn't going to work out to where they would make the city ordinance so they had to take this in front of the board to get a approval that we can go ahead with the sale The developer can do what they want to do with the land. Well, as you guys have pointed out already, Westfield is very concerned with this image, and they turned the Broadduses down. They tell them, you cannot sell to this property developer, because that was the only way they were going to buy that land, is if they could split it and make it into two homes. That gets thrown out. Maria is wildly upset because, you know, she grew up here. This is her town. She says something to the effect that you guys know the hell we've been going through and you had a chance to make it better for us and you chose not to because they're way too concerned about the aesthetic of the town versus what these people are going through. This is when it legit turns into like a Stepford Wives suburban fucking nightmare. And especially for Maria, because she grew up there, like she grew up in Westfield, like this is her roots, her town completely turning on them just because they want to do something that basically the hive mind is saying won't be for the greater good. And it's like very much like almost culty mentality. You know what I mean? Where it's like everything must be in place and blah, 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 blah. 
what like I think we could all agree that this is certainly a reason for like at least considering it, you know? Um, but they're all like Nabu. They're now like, great, what the fuck are we gonna do with this house? They end up renting out the home. And they rent the home to an older couple who has uh, grown children and two giant dogs. Then the Broadduses go one step further and they put in the lease a clause that if you get any threatening letters from the watcher, you can move. So again, completely fair. I think that's a totally fair thing they're doing. Two weeks into living in that house, the renter gets a letter from the watcher. But the letter is not addressed to the new residents of the home. The letter is addressed saying, violent winds and bitter cold to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. Someone's angry. Mm-hmm. You wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me. One of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you know and you're too scared to tell anyone. Good move. I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. Address survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of Address with my orders. All hail the Watcher. The letter goes on because we only have an excerpt of it. And then it, the Watcher obviously wants some kind of revenge. The Watcher is pissed at Derek and Maria. And he ends the letter with saying, maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet, loved ones suddenly die, planes and cars and bicycles crash, phones break. Watcher is not fucking happy. No. And this is like the first time where there's very clear depictions of harm or violence against the family in the letter. But this also, for me, is what completely drives the nail home that this is somebody that lives in the neighborhood that was at the town hall meeting. They're there, like they're in the thick of it. It's probably somebody that just doesn't like them. And it might just be that they just simply don't like them and that's the only reason they have for doing this or is some you know mentally unstable person who is again living here for a while in westfield and is very concerned with keeping their town the way that it is and if we're gonna be in that train of thought it does um eerily reflect the state of our nation but that also kind of paints a picture for you. The renters live there for a while, but then it sits empty. And Derek Maria finally sell the home this year in July. According to Zillow, it sold on July 4th, 2019. They sold it for $960,495 by Coldwell Banker of Westfield West. They definitely sold it at a loss. They just wanted to unload it. I'm happy they sold it. I'm happy it's no longer their burden. I'm going to be curious to see if any of the new owners get letters from the watcher. But that's going to feed us into our theories. What or who is the watcher? Buyer's remorse? 
because the house was very expensive. Um, people online will point out how they moved from you know, a $300,000 home to a $700,000 home to a $1.4 million home. They're thinking that the Broadduses overextended themselves financially and they were looking to get out of the house because they realized they weren't able to afford it. Derek justifies moving up as like the American dream. He became more successful in business. They were able to expand and buy bigger homes. You know, what you're supposed to do as you advance in a career, a better house, better whatever. Um, the bi- that's the big one, though. A lot of people think that this is buyer's remorse. They also think that this is some kind of insurance fraud. The more woo ones is that the house is possessed by a demon. Derek and Maria were grasping at straws. They had their priests come in and bless the house. So, I mean, a creepy entity called The Watcher makes a great movie. Also, The Watcher's real. He's a creepy stalker. Another theory that I'm personally fond of online was um, the city of Westfield is basically a giant cult. Mm. And that they have to, they need the young blood to keep the city very affluent and on these safest lists and most desirable neighborhoods. So they would sacrifice a young child to reach that status. You know, that's not Uh, the weirdest thing that I've heard. And TBH, um, that falls right in line with the weird shit that happens in the Wachong Reservation. There has been, like, actual accounts of animal sacrifices there. Like, that's a thing. There's also been one confirmed death there. Girl. Girl. New Jersey's fucked up, man. No wonder we're so fucked. One of the favorite uh, theories is the ghost of John List, which you guys had brought up previously during Ashley's story. Yeah. A little bit of background on this. John List lived in Westfield in 1971. He lived in a home called Breeze Knoll Mansion, which sat, according to what I read, about 10 minutes from the Broadus home. Would that be right? Uh, probably, yes. Probably, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. John List is a member of the phenomenon called Family Annihilators, which mm-hmm. is something I'm looking at doing a huge series on soon. Um, earning him the nickname The Boogeyman of Westfield. John List was the vice president of Jersey City Bank, and he was also city comptroller. He lived in a McMansion-style home. Um, He was very successful, very wealthy. He lived in that house with his mother, Alma, his wife, Helen, their daughter, Patricia, or Patty, as you guys had mentioned earlier. She was 16. He lived there with his two sons, John Jr., which I hate when people name their kids after themselves. I fucking hate that. It's so pretentious and narcissistic. That's a narcissist thing. I totally understand wanting to, like, honor a family, but your kid's your own person. Like, I just hate that. But John Jr. was 15, and Frederick was 13. Do you think they um, called him JJ? Who knows? <laughs> Hopefully they called him Junior, just because I hate it. Mm. Um, <laughs> on November 9th, 1971, John List shot his wife and his mother in the head and then waited for his children to come home. Patricia and Frederick got home first from school, and he shot them each in the back of the head execution style. He then drove to Westfield High School where he picked up John Jr. from his soccer game. When they got home, he shot him in the face and then again in the chest. He then dragged the bodies Ooh. and laid them in sleeping bags in the home's ballroom. They had a fucking yeah. ballroom. Mm-hmm. Dude, 
See, like the thing you had mentioned about him being the Westfield boogeyman, John List is a horror story that like basically our parents told us as kids. And like there, uh, I believe there is a theory that, you know, John List did not act of his own accord, that he had been possessed in some way. But it's probably more likely that he was just feeling the financial stress of not being able to afford where he was living. And again, you know, boys and them not dealing with their mental health issues. uh, Shit gets real. Hi, that's a real thing. But yeah, it is. It is totally toxic masculinity. Asking for help is weak. Mm. But so he lays the bodies out in sleeping bags in the family ballroom. He then cuts himself out of every single family photo in the house. He turns on a religious radio station and he left. The family would lay dead in the ballroom for over a month. Neighbors only started to notice that something was wrong. With the light bulbs started burning out at the house. Yeah. That's when they alerted authorities. And like a month, dude. Right. A but fucking like, month. Here's the thing, because as much as people are um, uh, concerned about the status and the way things look, there's also the mentality of you keep to yourself and your neighbor's problems are not your problems in Westfield. Well, like it's also did, that. My question is. Why did the teachers at the school not notify that they're truant? The kids are truant at that point. I have a note about this. Didn't, like, John say something about them going on extended vacation or something? Yes, but here's the thing. Patricia List knew her dad was up to no good because she had made a comment to both a teacher and a peer that if their father tells the school administration that they are on a long vacation, something was going to happen. Oh, that That's shit fucked horrifying. up. Horrifying. That is yes. horrifying. Yes. Um, and then correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't like the tragically ironic thing that the ballroom that he laid the bodies in, that like stained glass windows that line the ceiling would have been enough to eradicate their debts if he sold them or something like that? Yes, and the chandeliers as well because they were made uh, from Tiffany. Right, that's Jesus what it was. And Christ. I knew oh there was God. Tiffany. So again, men not wanting to deal with their problems and not being creative problem solvers think this is the only way to solve my issues. Right. Kill my family and run. But here's the thing. In addition to that, he knew the wife mm-hmm. was medically disabled because she had mental illness. John could not hold a job. He would just literally go and sit at the Westfield train station every single day and read the paper from eight to five every single day because he could not hold a job. And while that was happening to stay afloat, he was skimming from Alma's social security checks. Uh, And then she found out and then, you know, fan full of shit and it's hitting. Jesus. So. He he runs, right? So yeah. he cuts himself out of the family photos. He runs. He's on the run for almost 18 years. He ends up getting married again. And the story aired on America's Most Wanted in 1989. And he says he killed his whole family to protect them from the horrible financial ruin that they were that he was keeping massive secret. And then again, in an interview in 2002, he states that he didn't kill himself. Because that would stop him from getting into heaven where he hoped to be reunited with his family. Now, this is the very, like, bread and butter version of the John List story. I didn't want to take up more time than necessary with it. But List ends up dying in prison in 2008. 
And some people believe that that house had been haunted by the ghost of John List and his family. So with the proximity of the broadest home to the List home, that's where they bring that in. And I think it's a very interesting story that two horrific things have happened within 10 minutes of each other. Right. Especially because Breeze Knoll is no more. Breeze Knoll burned down. Yeah. I also had the the demon paranormal stuff wasn't really on my list, but I will say I also had a cult theory on my mind, but it wasn't that there was a sacrifice of a child that was needed, just that it was such an insular community that they were like, you are not one of us, you cannot be here. So it was the whole community acting and trying to get them out as soon as the house was bought. Because again, for some reason, this family struck the neighborhood hive mind in the wrong way. I think that's also horrifying. Oh, you know. no, I totally agree with you that like a group of people could band together and just mm-hmm. decide, nope, you're gone. And then yeah. you're gone. Or it's someone random that lived in the area that just really wasn't well mentally. And they probably didn't fully understand the ramifications of their actions, but in the same way knew exactly what they were doing. Netflix has won a bidding war to turn this into either a series or a movie, and I will watch the fucking shit out of that. I hope it doesn't suck. Absolutely. I hope it doesn't suck. But this is literally, honestly, if this is true, if somebody was watching this house and sending them, these letters weren't products of the Broadus or somebody trying to get the house, but this is actually happening This is the scariest fucking story I have ever heard in my life. Do you think this could be, like, Haunting a Hill House season two? Oh. Oh, that would be amazing. As long as Ryan Murphy doesn't turn this into a season of American Horror Story, I'll be fine. Do you know what I mean? He won't, because... I hope not. (laughs) What do you call it? 1984 premieres tonight. So, And I think that's the last one. That is true. It is premiering tonight. Oh, girl. I love this story. Nick, Ashley, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. Why don't you go ahead and plug your social medias for everyone? Nicholas, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, you can find Ashley and I at um, our Copulators Die First social media account on Instagram at Copulators Die First pod. Slide into our DMs. Uh, We always wish that we had more engagement with our listeners. Um, They are, as of yet, rather silent. Either than that, you can also email us at copulatorsdiefirstpod at gmail.com. Me personally, I am on the Instagrams as um at she bring it to you every ball um that is the word she bring it the number two the word you as in y-o-u it every ball all one word um it's a very it's a very specific um reference to the um 1980s slash 1990s ball scene in New York City. Um, she bring it to you every ball. So by all means, follow me. Um, I'm sorry that my Instagram handle needed its own um, explanation. But that is really the only place that I engage on social media anymore. 
I mean, that's 100% fair because social media is, it's exhausting. And I applaud you, Tori, for being able to do it. And I applaud you, Nicholas. But you can follow me at gory underscore Feldman because I'm a sucker for a fucking pun. Hey, Tori, plug your own shit on your own show. <laughs> yeah, I probably should. So, um, guys, if you want to follow the show, you can follow us on Instagram at Toil and Trouble Podcast. Find us on Facebook at Toil and Trouble Podcast. Find us on Twitter at Toil and Trouble underscore. If you want to follow me, I'm not that interesting, but whatevs. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Tor is Boring. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Victoria Red Velvet. And I guess since we're, like, explaining our handles, I guess Red Velvet, like, I like redhead dudes. I don't know. Maybe it's my favorite flavor of dude. Okay. <laughs> like a Like a spicy orange crush. Honestly, though, like, I've dated two gingers, and it should not be my favorite flavor because it did not work out each time horribly. I mean, maybe you just like red velvet cake. It's fine, you know. That's fair. That's um, probably that's probably an answer my parents would like to hear better. Like, <laughs> dude, dudes are like. But also, I disagree. I think you're very interesting, and that's why we're friends. And we, honest to goodness, love being on your show. We love having you on our show. We just, Nick and I just love you a lot. So <laughs> it's I nice like to get to hang too. out with you. <laughs> yeah, well, this actually, was super fun. I know, and Nick, you're welcome anytime. But since you're the guest, do you want to sign off with our Creep It Real? Well, um, Ashley, you already got to do it once, right? Yes, I did. All right. So it's just Creep It Real, right? Yeah, that's all it is. All right. Well, everyone, um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, Creep It Real. That was so good. Oh, yay. (laughs) Do you want a job? (laughs) Sure. Do you want to pay me? (laughs) Tori and I are hiring I and we have no money. Let's make money. <laughs> it's for three dollars. Mm, okay, that's fine. <laughs>